Thanks, Krista, for that beautiful song. So well done. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing Gospel, the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 19 through 30. 19 through 30. This is going to be a part one of a two-part sermon. So really, this is a three-point message, and I'm just going to give you the first two points this morning. Everybody said, Amen. I know you appreciate that. So his sheep is the title. We're in John chapter 10. Again, I'm going to read 19 through 30, but we're probably going to only make it down to about verse 26 together this morning. And so here's what we read, starting in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father, we do bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would use your spirit to illuminate your word, that we would be able to see what it means to be one of your sheep. God, we want to be touched by the words of Christ, as the question is asked and as he answers it, may we listen carefully this morning to learn what you want us to learn so we can live out a life of faith as a sheep in the fold of God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, here in John chapter 10, we've been learning about the good shepherd and his sheep. In fact, if you look back at verse 2, we read that he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And then in verse 3, we discover that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In verse 4, we understand that the sheep follow the shepherd for they know his voice. Skip down to verse 11. We are informed that Jesus is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Look at verse 16 where we hear Jesus say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. You can look up now. We're looking again about how Jesus is the door, and he is also the shepherd. And if Jesus is the good shepherd, then that most definitely means that those of us who are in Christ are his sheep. And the question I want to ask you this morning is why does the Lord refer to his people with this figure of the word sheep? And I believe that the reason for this reference to his people as his sheep is that Christians have a lot of similarities with sheep. Under the Mosaic Covenant, a sheep 
was one of the few clean animals. Sheep were to be, not, not to be avoided, but they were rather to be gathered and led and seen as a blessing. And therefore, it is suitable that the sheep represent God's people who have been cleansed from their sin and who need to be gathered in and who need to be led by a faithful shepherd. Furthermore, sheep is a harmless animal. Even children can approach a sheep without any fear or being frightened. When our family traveled to Australia earlier this year, we stayed on a sheep farm. And from time to time, I would see my young boys run out into the sheep pen and chase the sheep around the house. They didn't like that very much, the owners there. They're like, you better get those boys out of that sheep pen. I don't want them running the sheep all across the outback, right? But the idea is that sheep are harmless. You don't have to be afraid of them. And just as sheep are harmless, God's people are also exhorted to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sheep are also helpless. God created them by nature that they would neither have weapons of attack or defense, such as horns or claws or teeth. Equally helpless is the believer in and of himself. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Sheep are gentle. A lamb is one of the most sweet and gentle of all the creatures that God made. We think of a lamb as being so cuddly and cute. In fact, one of the homes that I visited while in Australia had a little lamb as a family pet. You know, we read about that ewe lamb, right? That lamb that was just kind of brought up with the family. And that's how, I guess, some sheep are. I'd never experienced that before. But when, when I got out of the car, the sheep came up to greet me like a dog. When I walked in the house, they left the door open and the sheep would walk in and just walk around the house like it owned the place. When I would sit there to talk with his family, the sheep would come put its head in my lap and nuzzle its little mouth there under my hand to be pet. When I left the house, it walked right with me out uh, until I got in the car. They're, they're gentle animals, right? They can be pleasant animals. And, and uh, this is a, a, ever a grace which ought to distinguish the followers of Christ. A Christian is to be a peaceable person, a gentle person, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Sheep are entirely dependent on their shepherd. Not only must the sheep look to the shepherd for protection against wild animals, but sheep must follow the shepherd to safety. Sheep must follow the shepherd who leads them into green pastures. Sheep follow the shepherd who leads them beside the still waters. May we always trust and follow the good shepherd of our souls. Sheep are often characterized by a proneness to wonder. Sing about it even this morning that I'm prone to wonder, right? Even when sheep are placed in a field with a fence all around it, if there's a gap or a break in the fence anywhere, it seems like the sheep will eventually get out and stray. And so it is with each one of us. All we like sheep, Isaiah wrote, have gone astray, each one to his own way. Urgently then do we need to heed the Lord's instruction to watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Lastly, sheep is a useful animal. Each year it supplies a crop of wool. In this too, a sheep prefigures a Christian. The daily labor of a Christian is to produce the fruit of the spirit. The daily responsibility of the Christian is to realize that we are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. 
We are to bear much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. So let me ask you this morning, are you one of his sheep? The Lord Jesus knows each one of those whom the Father has given to him with a special knowledge of ownership and affection and intimacy. And though the world does not know us, we are known by him. If you are a Christian today, you can say, I am his. I belong to the good shepherd. My life is in his hands. He knows me by name. He cares for my every concern. He knows me inside and out, and he still loves me. He's devoted to me. He cares for me. He feeds me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so this morning, as we look at verses 19 through about 26, we'll cover 27 to 30 maybe next week, I want to give you three headings, so that's two, that will help us wander from the good, uh, that will help us not wander from the good shepherd, but rather feel the security of being one of his sheep. That'll be a very satisfying truth this morning, that you're his, you're his sheep. We're not going to wander, but we're going to come under his care and to be a true part of the flock of God, to be secure forever. And so what we're going to do is look at this morning the confusion about Christ, then we'll see the question asked of Christ, and next week we'll look at the assurance offered by Christ. So just the first two points this morning. The first heading is this, the confusion about Christ. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, is this, Jesus is always causing division. He's always causing division. Think about that in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Well, what were the words that were causing the division? I'll remind you again in John 10, where we've been looking at even in John 9 and John 8, all of these chapters of John, we've been talking about these I am statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had just given two of the I am statements earlier here in chapter 10. I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. And so both of these statements are, are, are hinting at the fact, are really claiming very clearly that Jesus is claiming to be one with the Father. The, these statements are very clear. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, and yet these words of Christ cause division because Jesus is declaring that he's divine. He is the only way to heaven. Jesus is teaching that you must come out of the sheep pen of Judaism and the old covenant, and you must come into a new covenant of grace by following the shepherd who comes and calls you by name, that when he calls you, your head looks up and you stop grazing on whatever you're grazing on, and you follow that shepherd out of the sheep pen and into the pasture. We've been talking about how Jesus is teaching that if you come through the door of Christ, then you are one of his sheep, but you must be led out by Christ because he and he alone is the good shepherd, and there are wolves, and there are thieves, and there are robbers that are trying to get into you. But if you know the shepherd, you follow his voice, and he leads you into a covenant of grace and redemption. And in this chapter, Jesus is indicting the Pharisees, and he's calling them, again, thieves and robbers. Jesus is teaching that the thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus also claims to have other sheep outside of Judaism, outside of his chosen people, outside of ethnic Israel, 
called Gentiles, that he wants to bring them into the fold of God. And Jesus declares that he will lay down his life for his sheep, and he will also take it up again. And Jesus announces that he has received this charge from the Father. And so the division over the people is whether or not Jesus is telling the truth. I mean, he's making these bodacious claims to be one with the Father. And so everyone is divided about do we believe him or not? Is he telling the truth or a lie? Is Jesus the true door and the true shepherd, or is he a sham? Is he to be trusted and followed, or should the Jews stick with their old system, which is now broken and cannot hold water? Notice verse 19 says, again, there was a division. In other words, this is not the only division over Jesus. In fact, we see there was a division over Jesus when he claimed to be the living water in John chapter 7. Some thought that he really was the prophet, and others thought that he was not. Some stated that Jesus couldn't be the Christ because he was from Galilee, and the Savior was to be born in Bethlehem, which Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But they didn't do, want to do their homework to realize that even though he lived in Nazareth, he had been born in Bethlehem. And so John seven forty three says, so there was a division among the people over him. Another division among the Pharisees happened in John 9 when Jesus healed the man born blind. Jesus put mud on the man's eyes and had him wash in the pool of Siloam so he could see again, but this all happened to happen on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees got upset about it, and they said this man can't be from God because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. They said in John 9, 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. As long as there is truth, there will always be division. Truth cuts like a knife. Truth cuts away the fat. Truth is a division between right and wrong. Truth cuts it straight. Where there is truth, there will always be error nearby. Where there are those who hold to the truth, there will also be those who run from the truth. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, I've come to divide. You no longer have anything to hold on to except Christ himself. You can't hold on to your religion. You can't hold on to your spouse. You can't hold on to your mother or your father or your son or your daughter. If any of those traditions or family cultures are keeping you from Christ, then you're not worthy of him. Because he says it's Christ first. All else must fall away. How difficult this must be for some of you who maybe have come out of a Roman Catholic background or if you've come out of Judaism, or if you've come out of Mormonism, or if you've come out of the Jehovah Witness movement, then your family may have disowned you. That's exactly what we're talking about. Don't stay with your family. Stay with Christ. One of the clearest tests you can tell somebody's a Christian if they're like, well, I'm thinking about being a Christian, but I don't want my mom and dad to get upset. I don't want to be kicked out of the family. Then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is we need Christ. 
Will you choose the truth of God's word or will you believe a lie? Will you place the tradition of your faith over Christ himself? Are you willing to separate in belief from your own family and loved ones in order to embrace the Lord of glory? If you're not willing to abandon your own family, if they're pulling you away from Christ, then you're not worthy of him. You must lose your life in order to find your life in Christ. There is a severing that must take place from all that you hold on to except Christ himself. And so what we're seeing is there's always a division. Wherever Jesus is, it's not like everybody's following him. It's not like the whole world comes after him. Some come, some run. Some follow, some follow a, a God of their own making. So we see here there's always division and this confusion around Christ. We also see your second blank is that Jesus is condemned by many. There are many who condemn the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 20 reads like this. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? This, this accusation that Jesus is insane means that they believe that Jesus has gone mad. They believe that Jesus is out of his mind. They believe that, that Jesus has gone bonkers. Or maybe he's somehow possessed by a demon. They're accusing him of working for the devil. This is also nothing new. We read in John 7 of how the Jews were trying to secretly have Jesus arrested so they could kill him, and Jesus confronted the Jews about this. In John 7, 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. In John 8, 48, we read, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? A few verses later in John 8, 52, we read how the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. In Mark 3, 22, we see ultimate deterioration of the Jews' perception of Jesus when the scribes who came down for Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, which is a reference to Satan, by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So we understand that they're condemning Jesus, not only as being a heretic, but is being possessed by the devil and working for the devil himself. These unbelieving Jews would not listen to Jesus. They would not heed his words. They would not follow his voice. They would not bow down to him as Lord. They were followers of their father, the devil. They were following the prince of the power of the air. They were following the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. They were by nature children of wrath, following the course of this world. My friends, you have to make a choice. It's either Jesus or the devil. You say, Adam, that sounds so harsh, but it's exactly what Jesus teaches. You're either following your father who created you or the father of this world, the devil. And how unthinkable that these depraved souls these legalistic Jews, these mere mortals would condemn the Lord of heaven and earth. How unthinkable that the depraved would condemn deity. The creature would condemn the creator. The heathen would condemn the holy one of God. The reprobate would condemn the redeemer. The sons of disobedience would condemn the only son of God. But there is a ray of hope. In the next verse, a, a possible remnant coming out of the darkness into the light. In verse 21, we read that Jesus, your next blank, is coherent and intriguing. He is coherent and somewhat intriguing. Others said, verse 21, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 
In this division, we see there are many who think Jesus has a demon, that he is a blasphemer, that he's out of his mind. But there are others, there are others who say that these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. In other words, a demon-possessed man doesn't talk like this. A demon-possessed man, we've read descriptions in the Bible, what a demon-possessed person does, right? In the New Testament, we read about how a demon-possessed man writhes in pain and in confusion. A demon-possessed man foams at the mouth. A demon-possessed man throws himself into the fire. A demon-possessed man runs around the graveyard and the tombs and is unkept and unclothed and he's completely removed from society. No one follows a demon-possessed man. No one can understand a demon-possessed man. Jesus is well-behaved. He is coherent. He is calm. He is collective. He heals the sick. He walks on water. He feeds the masses. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. He causes the lame to walk. He cures the leper. These words of Jesus being the bread of heaven and the light of the world and the door of the sheep and the good shepherd are words that bring encouragement and hope. They are words that bring soundness and salvation. They are words that lift up our countenance and these words calm our hearts. This is no demon-possessed man. The end of verse 21 is a reference to what had just happened in John 9. You see when he says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember in our context, John 9, where, where uh, Jesus had just done that. He had healed that man who was born blind, and, and they're saying a demon couldn't do that. A demon never restored someone's sight. A demon has never added any benefit or value to anyone's life, ever. Uh, do you remember how the Pharisees were then interrogating that man who was born blind, who could now see? They were, they were encouraging him, that man to reject Christ and, and to stay away from him. And listen again to how the blind man answered them in John 9.30. The man said, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it ever even been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It pretty much settles it, right? It's not just that Jesus healed the man, it's that this is a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. Only the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, Isaiah 35. Only the Messiah could open the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus is a man who listens to the Father and who does the Father's will. Jesus is from God. It was in the beginning that was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a reference again to Christ. And so we're seeing that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is always clear. It's always coherent. That there is the appropriate usage of language that does intrigue and pique the interest of the true listener who's following the words of Christ. There is the appropriate use of indicatives and imperatives. There are figures of speech that Jesus employs. There are similes and metaphors. There are parables. Jesus is not trying to hide anything. He's simply using appropriate illustrations that are easy to grasp and understand. There is the clear explanations that Jesus gives of the Old Testament passages. Jesus hides nothing. He does not encrypt his message. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to show us God's love. He came to be our shepherd. He came because we are his sheep. And so don't be confused about Christ. 
Read his word. Ask him to open your eyes. Turn from your sin. Find your joy and your satisfaction in the giver of life and the lover of your soul and the true shepherd of the sheep. Be, be drawn to him this morning. Be attracted to him this morning. Be spellbound by his claims. Be transformed by his words. Be mesmerized by his majesty. Be enthralled by his eternality. Be captured by his love. Be absorbed with his beauty. Be riveted by his sacrifice. Be gripped by his grace. Don't be confused this morning. Just count your life as nothing. Look to Christ, who alone can save your soul from hell. If there's going to be a division this morning, may it be between you and sin. May it be between you and any other God. May it be between you and any other idol, any other desire except the desire that would glorify God in coming to him and giving your life to him and walking with him and being filled with true joy and contentment. Well, the second heading I want to give to you this morning is the question asked of Christ. And so we've seen the confusion about Christ and now secondly, this will be our last main heading this morning. We're going to look at the question asked of Christ. Your first blank here says the feast of dedication. The feast of dedication at that time, verse 22, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Well, as many of you may remember, there are three major feasts in the Old Testament where the Jews would come to Jerusalem. There was first the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover celebrated in March or April. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Harvest or Weeks that would be celebrated in May or June. And then there was the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles that was to be held in September or October. So now we're reading about the Feast of Dedication, but you won't find that when in the Old Testament. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible it's found, right here. In John chapter 10, verse 22, we're talking about the Feast of Dedication. So what is this Feast of Dedication, and why do we just now find it showing up? Why isn't it in the Old Testament? Well, most of you might remember that between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there are what we oftentimes refer to as 400 years of silence which simply means that from the last Old Testament prophet of Malachi until Matthew records the ministry of John the Baptist, there had been a, a period of silence for some 400 years. And I say a period of silence as far as divine revelation goes. We call this the intertestimonial period. So you're between the testament, the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. And during this time, a couple of important things happened historically. One of those things was the translation of the Septuagint, which is translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. It was done right in the middle of that 400 years of silence. In fact, it's interesting to note that when the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament, Almost 80% of the time, they're quoting from the Septuagint. It's a massive text that, again, takes the Hebrew and it turns it into Greek so as the culture's becoming more Hellenized, people can understand their Old Testament better. Another massive development during this time is this feast, the Feast of Dedication, practiced by the Jews. It's also known today as the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Now, I know you've heard about Hanukkah. This is what it's about, the Feast of Dedication, 
Today, we think of it as the Feast of Lights, where Jews light lots of candles and put them around their house. Maybe you've seen this, or it's called Hanukkah. And this feast is celebrated in late November or early December, according to different uh, calendars. It moves every year, and it's going to be an eight-day feast. And it's a time of celebration. What are they celebrating? Jews were celebrating the temple, which was cleared and rededicated to the Lord. You see, what had happened was this. There was a Syrian king by the name of uh, Antichius Epiphanes. Antichius uh, Epiphanes was a bad man, okay? He's a bad man. His name literally means God manifest. Uh, so he, he, he thought of himself as the supreme one. His eccentric behavior and his capricious actions led some of his uh, contemporaries to call him Antichius Epimenes, which means the mad one. So he's this guy who, who claimed that he wanted to be worshipped. He, he outlined Jewish religious rites and traditions kept by observant Jews and ordered the worship of Zeus as the supreme god. Uh, this was anathema to the Jews, and they refused. So Antichicus, uh, he sent an army in to enforce his decree. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed because of this resistance. Many people were slaughtered. This man established a military Greek citadel and called it the Acra. Antichicus was devoted to Greek culture. He imposed Hellenization upon the citizens of, of Jerusalem, and, uh, and he desecrated the temple. So the Jews' holy temple in the intertestamental period was totally desecrated by this man, 170 B.C. He actually sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, and he spread blood all over the temple in mockery of the Jewish sacrificial system. He erected a statue of Zeus in the most holy place. He, he attempted to do away with Judaism and with Israel's God. Daniel had prophesied about events like this that would happen at the abomination of desolation. Furthermore, Antiochus brutally oppressed the Jews and required them to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. The Jewish people were denied their right to read from the Hebrew scriptures. They were forbidden to worship on the Sabbath and to circumcise their children. Antiochus is a picture of the Antichrist, and this prophecy about the desecration of the temple was partly fulfilled in Antiochus when he did what he did, but there's also a future element that would be fulfilled in the Antichrist. And in uh, biblical hermeneutics, we call this an example of the already but not yet. The idea of some of the prophecies Daniel gave about the abomination of desolation when the temple would be desecrated, part of that was fulfilled by Antiochus historically, but that was a small fulfillment of the larger fulfillment that will happen in the future end times where the Antichrist himself will cause the ultimate abomination of desolation. So what happened was, is that this temple had been, again, it had been made a mess of, and and the Jews were not going to stand for this for one minute. So there was a priest by the name of Matthias who led a counterattack against Antiochus and his son, better known as Judas Maccabeus, maybe you've heard that name, became a brilliant guerrilla warfare soldier, and he attacked Antiochus and eventually was successful in liberating the temple. And after his military successes, Maccabees, Maccabeus cleansed the temple and he rededicated the temple to the Lord. And this is when the Feast of Dedication that we're reading about took place. 
It, it was established by the Jews after, again, Maccabeus was able to get rid of Antiochus and return that temple to be dedicated to the Lord, and that's when they celebrate the eight-day feast Hanukkah to this very day. They, they light candles. They have a special feast celebrating the rededication of the temple. By the way, whenever we talk about how the Jews were looking for a political leader or a military messiah, Judas Maccabeus was one of the reasons why. He was a great hero. He was a military leader. He restored the temple to be uh, more of a Jewish focus than, than it being decimated. And so he, he made a big splash on the scene. He, he restored the temple to the Jewish people. People looked up to him. He was the kind of leader they wanted Jesus to be. And so whenever they were thinking about, oh, we have another leader, a lot of the Jews could have been thinking, oh, he, maybe he'll be another leader like, like this guy. But Jesus didn't come at his first advent to be a military leader. He, he came to do something far greater than that. He came to change people from the inside out. Jesus came at the first advent to be a spiritual leader, not a military leader. He, he came to change people for all eternity. He, he came to, to change people by saving lives, not taking lives. Jesus came to change people and not to lead them into battle. He came to teach people how to live, not to train them how to kill. Jesus did not come to do guerrilla warfare. He came to do spiritual warfare. He came not to snuff out life, but to give life. He came not to give the people what they wanted, but to give the people what they needed. Jesus showed us how to live, and he showed us how to love. And his weapon was forgiveness, and his operation was sacrifice. And I hope that you will dedicate your life to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. His kingdom will know no end. His majesty is eternal. His reign will last for all of time. And so we should never look to leaders of this world to give us lasting peace. We should never look to any military person to give us lasting peace, but we look to the Lord of heaven and earth. So this just shows, again, a little bit of history of the Jewish faith of how they got so wrapped up into wanting a military leader instead of a spiritual leader. And then notice verse 22 at the end, it might hint at this. It says, it was winter. It was winter. Now, this reminds us that this text, verse 22, takes place about two months after verse 21. So in those two months after verse 21, it could be that Jesus left Jerusalem. could have been that he spent a few last uh, moments doing some last things, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem for the end here. And uh, what we're seeing is that it's winter could also be colorful language describing the lack of true spirituality of the Jews. It's like saying they were in the cold or they were living in the dark. could have been a, a hint that these Jewish people had really, or were walking in the darkness, it was cold and dreary. And we also read here about how this is going to be the, the end of Christ's teaching here. This is the last confrontation in verses 22 through 39. This will be the last uh, public confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. And then we're going to move in chapter 11 to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 12, we'll see the triumphal entry. In chapters 13 to 17, we'll see Jesus focusing and devoting himself to his own disciples. And then we'll see the crucifixion and the resurrection. So this is the introducing the last part of the confrontation that Jesus has been having with these Pharisees. Well, let's move on. Look at a second little heading there, the colonnade of Solomon. 
the colonnade of Solomon, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This was a porch or a portico. It was to provide a place or shelter on the temple mount. It would have provided protection from the elements, whether it be rain or wind or the hot sun in the winter, even sleet or the potential of snow. It was raised some 40 feet high. It's located on the east side of the temple area overlooking uh, the, the valley below. This was a, a place where rabbis would come and gather with their pupils, where pilgrims would come and, and gather and just, and just listen to the teaching. In fact, it was here in Solomon's portico that we read about how it's not too far from the beautiful gate where Peter and John healed the lame beggar. A bit later in Acts 5, we read how it was a place where the disciples gathered together at Solomon's portico. So it's a, a place where teaching would take place, and this is where they come to ask Jesus, your next blank, the Jews asked their question. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Notice how verse 24 says they gathered around him. This literally means they, they surrounded him. They encircled him. They pressed in close. They stood on their tiptoes and they leaned in to listen. And they, say, they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? The word suspense there means to be kept in a state of uncertainty about an outcome. They were not sure what Jesus would say, if anything, but they, would, they thought they would ask him one more time, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this reminds me of the question put to Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. This similar occurrence happened in the 16th century in Germany, when Martin Luther was placed on trial for his life before the princes of the church and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor of the time. And there at this gathering of the Roman Catholic officials, the authorities placed on a table all the copies of Martin Luther's works, and his interrogator insisted that Luther recant his writings. And Luther responded by saying, which writings? I have written many things. Surely you're not indicating that everything I have written is heretical? Martin Luther wanted the Roman Catholic authorities to specify exactly which of his works were regarded as untrue and unfit to be read. But his interrogator would have none of it, and he asked Luther to answer without horns. That is, simply and directly. The Roman scholar didn't want to debate the matter. He didn't want to dialogue on the matter. He didn't want uh, to discuss the matter anymore. He simply wanted a clear confession from Martin Luther. And this is the same kind of demand that's being made of Jesus here at the Feast of Dedication. No more evasions, no more ambiguities, no more figurative language, no more parables. Speak to us without horns. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus was not being evasive to escape personal consequences. Jesus never hid anything from anyone. In fact, it is true that throughout his public ministry, he was careful in using the term Messiah to describe his role. And the reason for this was not because he was trying to keep it a secret, but because he knew the Jews were looking for a political or a military Messiah like Judas Maccabeus. And at his first advent, this was not Jesus's purpose. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, he will be a military leader, and he will reign on the throne of David for a thousand years. He will come on a horse, and he will be a great warrior, even physically, but that day is not coming just yet. Right now, he's this spiritual leader, 
at this first advent, he came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about being the servant of the Lord. Isaiah writes about his messianic role of Jesus as being a suffering servant of Israel. And the people, they forgot about those passages. They just wanted the glorious military leader. They forgot about the suffering and the crucifixion must come first. And that's kind of how we are in our lives, right? We just want the glorious ending. And we forget about how life is about trials. And life is about going through the crosses. And life is about going through the persecution and the difficulties. And yet that's what Christ did. And so how does Jesus answer their question? They say again, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Our last blank, the answer offered by Jesus in verses 25 and 26, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Well, first notice here that Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. So it's not like Jesus has never said this. We've reviewed that already. Jesus had stated it plainly many times in all the I am statements. We could also take the time to look at John 4, where he said to the woman at the well in Samaria, when she said, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus had made it plain to the Jews that he belonged to the Father and that he works for the Father. John 5, 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Jesus had told them plainly in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. In John 8, 24, we also read that Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus made it clear again in John 8, 58, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. All I'm trying to say is this, Jesus had told them plainly. They keep saying, are you going to tell us? Are you going to tell us? As if he was holding out. He was never holding out. He was carefully fulfilling each and every prophecy in the right time, in the right space, in the right way, so that it would all come to this perfect culmination at the very end when he's crucified. Jesus always told the truth about who he was, but they did not believe in him. How had he told them? With his words and with his works. His miracles plainly showed us that he was God in the flesh, but the Jews could not understand the significance of his miracles because they were not of his sheep. It had not been granted to them by the Father. And this very Gospel of John is about Jesus doing seven special signs so they would know exactly who he was. And Jesus did more than seven. In fact, in John 20, 30, and 31, we're told that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did these seven signs that we're looking at here in the Gospel of John, but he did many other signs so that we might all believe that he is the Christ, that's the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that we may have life in his name. And so why didn't many of the Jews believe? Because they were not among his sheep. The Jews did not lack understanding because they lacked information. The Jews did not lack understanding because Jesus at any time had been unclear. The Jews lacked understanding because they were not of his sheep. 
and they were not of his sheep because they would not repent and believe. They insisted that Jesus do things their way, and they were not willing to do it Jesus' way. Jesus was not about works. He was about worship. He was not about human effort. He was teaching about divine grace. It was not about external obedience to an old covenant law. It was about internal transformation by the spirit of the living God and for them to put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And instead, the Jews hated the truth and they loved the darkness. That's what John 3.19 says. The light is coming to the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. At the same time, Jesus does say that all who come to him, he will by no means cast out. All the Father gives me, John 6, 37, all the Father gives to me, come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Uh, Jesus is available this morning to all who will come. Jesus is available to those who would renounce their sin, turn from the darkness, turn to the light. He is the Messiah. He is the door to heaven. He is the shepherd, and his sheep know his voice, and they follow him. As we'll read next week in verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, this morning, we've talked a lot about the confusion around Christ We've talked about the question of Christ, and I want to end maybe with this illustration about they're asking, are you the Christ or are you not? Imagine with me, if you will, that you're driving on a nice summer weekend to the beach, and here in Santa Clarita, you decide to take Highway 126, and you're traveling out to Ventura, and let's just say that the speed limit's 55 miles an hour all the way to Ventura, even though I think it goes up to 60 in a couple of places, all right? So somewhere between Santa Clarita and Ventura, you get pulled over by the California Highway Patrol. The officer asks you if he can see your license and registration, and he looks at you and he asks, do you know how fast you were going? You decide to play it dumb, so you say, I don't know. I don't know, officer. I have no idea. And he looks at you and he says, well, you were doing 70 in a 55, so I'm going to have to give you a speeding ticket. And you say to the officer, but officer, I didn't realize what the speed limit was. How was I supposed to know what the speed limit was? What do you think the officer is going to say, right? <laughs> Here you come. How would you expect him to respond if you're like, how am I supposed to know what the speed limit is, right? I mean, I would expect him to say something like, how are you supposed to know? There are speed limits posted every one to two to three miles telling you exactly what the speed limit is. What were you looking for, son? Do you want us to post a speed limit sign every 10 to 15 feet? I mean, I, th I think you get the idea. God, God has made it abundantly clear who he is through creation, and at times we get distracted and we stop looking at all the signs that God keeps posting in creation, in the events in your life, in the cross of Christ, in the Bible that he's given you. And we drive down through life and we act like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know who to follow. Listen to me. God has made it abundantly clear who he is through giving us creation, through giving us his son, Jesus Christ, and sending his son to die on a cross so that we are without excuse. There is no dodging the truth. There is an understanding that God loves you. 
and he shows you his character, and God demonstrated his love toward you, and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I call you this day to see the sign, to see the sign of Christ, the ultimate sign that he died and his body was placed in the grave for three days, and he was raised from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. I call you this day to listen to his voice. I call you today to stop playing the game of being dumb as if you don't understand or you don't get it. Let me make it plain. God is holy. You are a sinner. Christ is the Savior, and you must repent and believe in him. Stop asking so many questions and start trusting in Jesus with your life. Turn from your sin turn to Christ, listen not to the world's voice, but listen to the voice of Jesus in this passage. His works and his words bear witness and give a testimony that he is the Son of God. Aren't you tired this morning of running from him? Aren't you tired this morning of being a goat, of not having a true shepherd, of not being one of his sheep? Let Jesus be the good shepherd of your heart today and follow him with your life. In fact, we could ask these questions as we close. Number one, what is keeping you from following Christ? A lack of clarity or a lack of commitment? What is it this morning? You're sitting here in the pew. You've heard the words of Christ. What's keeping you from following Christ? Is it a lack of clarity from the word of God or a lack of commitment in your life to turn everything over to the Lord Jesus Christ? Second question, why are you holding on to your sin? Because you like it or because you're a slave to it? Very real question this morning, right? Why are you holding on to the things of this world? Do you really like your life as it is, stuck in your sin? Do you like it that way? Or is it that you're a slave and you don't know how to get out? Jesus is the way out. He will lead you out of whatever bondage that holds on to you. Last question is, which question do you need answered more? Who is Jesus or who are you without him? What's more important to understand? Who is Jesus or who are you without him? I've told you who Jesus is this morning. Maybe you need to take a real look at your life as who are you without him? My prayer is that you would all come. We would all come to be one of his sheep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive in this morning into John 10. And we just want to be your sheep, Lord. We confess that sometimes we get distracted with all the various historical components and all the different teachings we see in the Bible, and yet with great clarity we see as these people ask the question of Jesus again, are you the Messiah that Jesus answers without horns? And he says basically, I and the Father are one. He's already told us that, that Jesus is the light, that he is the bread of life, that he is the door that he is the good shepherd. And so, God, I pray that today you would open our eyes to see these truths, that we would come into a deeper relationship with you. God, that we would want to be one of your sheep with all of our pluses and all of our minuses, with all of our good attributes and all the areas we struggle. God, we're still your sheep, and you love us just as we are. And so may we heed your voice today. May we eat out of the green pastures today. May we follow your voice today. And may we tell others about the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and tell them how they also can become one of his sheep. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.